Well, we live in an interesting age. On the one hand, I think about how we are a society that has become increasingly concerned with privacy, with our, our private rights. There are privacy groups that are fighting with all their might that uh, we might secure our privacy. We just don't want to be invaded at all. In the medical field, there are the HIPAA laws that have been passed that greatly restrict those who have access to our medical records. In the financial world, there are privacy laws which protect those who have investments from you know, out sharing what exactly is there. Confidentially is a huge concern in many legal professions. So concerned are those in Australia that in 1988 they passed the National Privacy Act which sought to address this issue of privacy and personal information on a national level. It seems our world is paranoid with wanting our privacy. We put up fences in our yards so as to keep people out and so that we can have our own private yard we have. We, we want our homes to be havens where no one else enters because we are private people. We have what, what we have. There are no call lists which prohibit telemarketers from calling our homes and bothering us. In our day and age, we want our privacy. But on the other hand, there's this interesting phenomenon in our, our culture that we are free and liberal with many of the details of our private lives. I mean, Facebook comes to mind. And uh, you just think about what is shared on Facebook. How many of you are on Facebook? I know, I know many of you. I'm not friends with all of you. I should be, I guess, maybe, to, to um, spy on you, I guess, or to figure out what's going on. Or... But think about what we share on Facebook. We who are so concerned about privacy, on the other hand, we tell people where we're going for vacation. We tell people what we watched on television yesterday. We tell people when we were depressed. We tell people of our marriage difficulties. We tell people when our child is potty trained. We show our baby's ultrasound pictures. We tell people how our homework is coming along, how many hours of sleep we had last night, that we have a headache. We tell people what we had for lunch. We tell when we found the golden egg on the video game. We, we tell people about our dreams last night in our sleep. We tell people when we've made a new friend. We tell people when we've had a conversation with somebody. We tell people what our pets have done. We, we tell people when we've joined the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. We tell people when we stubbed our toe. We tell people when we almost got in a car accident. All these things we say and we want people to know about and yet wanting privacy on the other hand. Well, such is the society in which we live. We want privacy, but we want to tell everybody about our lives on the same time. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm just going to talk a bit about our privacy before the Lord, verses 12 and 13. And these verses talk about how there is no privacy between us and the Lord, but all things are open and laid bare to the Lord. Indeed, that's my message title this morning, Open and Laid Bare. See, God knows all about us. He uses word to search deep within us and there's nothing hidden from His sight that He doesn't know about us. He doesn't wait for us to post our intimate details of our lives on Facebook. Listen, He knows it all. I want to read our two verses this morning. We'll look at Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword 
and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Verse 12 speaks about the penetrating nature of God's Word. It searches us deep within. It pokes us and cuts us open. Even our thoughts are exposed. Even the intentions of our heart is exposed. And then verse 13 speaks about the penetrating nature of God's eyes. Nobody can hide from God. Nobody can erect privacy fences big enough to escape the gaze of God. But all things are open and laid bare before Him. Now, what's interesting about these verses, these are well-known verses, often quoted and brought out, speaking about how God's Word is so powerful, how God's Word is living and active, and how God does search all things. And indeed, my message today, you're going to see that. I want to reflect upon that because that's the point of verses 12 and 13. And my hope and prayer from this message that you would come to feel the power of God's Word. And that in 2010, you might give yourself to God's Word realizing how effective it is and how helpful it is. But, but too often, one of the things I fear is that Hebrews 12, 4, 12 and 13 are just taken out of their context and, and preached and taught and thought about just independently with no regard given to the context in which they are found. People will often just pluck them out and uh, not, not really even speak about what came before it or what came after it. However, there were some thoughts that came before Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, and there were some thoughts that came afterwards. And, and if, if I pass on anything to you as a pastor, one of the things I want to pass on to you as you read God's Word is that it flows. It, it's not just a, a series of disjointed statements together. It's not, the Bible isn't like a political campaign speech where, where it's just a paragraph here on this subject and then a paragraph on this subject and a paragraph on this subject and a paragraph on this subject. No, the Bible is... It's like a story in which all the parts relate to one another. Oh, there are times when there's instruction and morals given, like in the book of Proverbs, and there's time and there's background and history, but, but the Bible is telling a redemptive story. And within each book of the Bible, the, often the context is crucial. And especially here in Hebrews, which is really a sermon. It is preached. There is a reason why he included verses 12 and 13. And the question is, how do they fit into the context? How are they connected? How do they fit into the logic of the book? You see that they're connected there in verse 12 with the word for. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Some of your translations don't have that word in there. It just says the word of God is living and active. It doesn't have that connecting word. It's there in the Greek. It's there in most translations and faithful good translations it's there because the Word of God is living and active and it brings you back to say, why is, it, why is this here? Well, it draws us back really to verse 11 which is the conclusion of what we looked at last week. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In other words, from last week, we need to be diligent to enter His rest by believing the promises of God that we might not be like those in Israel who heard the promises, had the promise of the good news, and forsook it and disbelieved and didn't obey the Lord. Therefore, they didn't enter the rest and we are called to fear, chapter 4, verse 1, lest while a promise remains, any of you may come short of entering that rest. 
And, and so what here he's saying is, let's be diligent to enter that rest because God's Word is open and it exposes us and we are laid bare before His Word. I think the connection here is this, is, is that the rest must be entered. And if you, whatever, if you think you're going to enter, kind of going to get in by the side door, remember in Pilgrim's Progress where the two guys are going to jump over the wall and get in? God knows. God knows you can't get in that way. God knows you get in through faith and belief and trust and God's Word will expose us. And if you try to get in another way, it's not going to take place. The only way into the rest is through faith. Chapter 4, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. There's the faith. It comes also by us in a a diligence to make sure we enter that rest. Verse 11, we come through obedience No one will fall through following the same example of disobedience because God's Word is open and it will convict us and it will show us where we fall. God's Word will expose us. God's Word is like an x-ray machine that looks at the condition of our bones. God's Word is like the MRI which looks deepened to us and finds the tumors of unbelief deep within us. God's Word is like a full body scan that can detect the, the presence of any foreign substances on our body. It's because the Word of God is the divine heart surgeon that can cut deep into our hearts and open us up and lay us bare. That's why we need to fear not entering His rest. That's why we need to be diligent to enter His rest because we won't escape God's Word. Because God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Children, you may escape and deceive your parents through your cunning abilities, your trickiness. You might deceive your pastor one thing I've learned over the years pastoring people is that when people come for counsel or help, oftentimes they're not straightforward with everything that's going on in your life. And uh, like if I knew the whole facts, maybe there would be a different counsel, but you only get the facts according to how you want to. You can deceive me for sure. But you won't escape God's Word. If you've heard His warnings and neglected them, know that the blood is upon your hands and you're not going to escape. That's the point of verses 12 and 13. It's the concluding thoughts of our warning section, which began chapter 3, verse 7, and comes now at the end. He he warns us in chapter 3, verse 7, don't harden your hearts like those in Israel did, because I swore that they would not enter His rest, but rather, right, care for your hearts by examining, realizing that you're susceptible to falling away, and encourage one another day after day, as long as still called today. Examine your hearts. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Examine your hearts and and, and ask yourself, are you holding fast? Are you believing the promises? You need to do that because God's verdict will be sure. There will be no mistakes about it. No innocent people sent to hell. No innocent people not entering into the rest. Oh, in our culture, in our day and age, innocent people may spend some time in prison. DNA evidence may come up to help free those up, but not in God's economy. In God's economy, He knows exactly every detail about us. There's no privacy. So let us be diligent to enter that rest. Well, by way of outline this morning, I have two points. One point for each verse. It really just flushes out very nicely. My first point is verse 12. God's Word cuts to the heart. God's Word cuts to the heart. That's the big idea of verse 12. Each phrase speaks about how God's active work to penetrate deep within us. And, and what I want to do this morning is just pick out each of these phrases and talk about them and, 
and, and cause them really to sink into our minds we think about God's Word. Now, when we say God's Word, just by way of definition, I think that it encompasses everything that comes from God, whether it is uh, a spoken word, <clears throat> whether it's an oral word, whether it's a preached word, whether it's whatever is along lines of God. Particularly, though, we know for sure in terms of the Scriptures that that is the Word of God, but the Word can refer also to what's preached. Because look, it says in chapter 4, verse 2, Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the Word they heard did not profit them. I don't think that necessarily is just contained to the Scriptures. I think it's the, the call of God coming into someone's life. The Word of God, when it comes a message from God, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, though certainly it applies most directly to the, the Scriptures. It says, first of all, that God's Word is living. See there in verse 12? For the Word of God is living. There's a vitality to this book. There's, there's a life to the words that we have before us. Now, it's not that, that the... the the Bible itself and wrapped around by leather. It's not as if this has got some magical qualities in it, but it's the message which is in here has a life to it. And your Bible may well just sit on the shelf and collect dust, but know that God's Word is alive and active and well. It is life-giving. Maybe remember the time when Jesus was tempted? Satan told Jesus, Tell this, command this stone to become bread so you can eat because you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus then said what? Man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, you should live on God's words. Do you? Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8 in the context you can see that God's saying, I fed you with the manna. I sustained your clothing from wearing out. I protected your health. You live by My Word. And that's how we need to live. Trusting in God and His Word. God's Word is alive. Stephen, the church's first martyr, referred to these words when he gave, that, that God gave to Moses. He recalled them living oracles which have been passed on to the Jews for generation after generation after generation. Living oracles. Many biblical writers speak about God's Word as alive and well. Jeremiah said, Your words were found and I ate them. You eat food. You eat something that help gives you life. And your words became for me a joy and the light of my heart. The point here isn't that God's Word is a candy bar. The point here is that God's Word is alive and life-giving. It's sweet and delightful. David said, Your words are more desirable than honey, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. More desirable than gold. Sweeter than honey. That's how God's Word is described. The law that's perfect converts the soul. Peter, when he describes our coming to faith, he said, You've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. When Paul described the Scripture, he described it as being God-breathed, breathed out by God with life given it. Isaiah said, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. There's something immortal about the Word of God. Its, it's life is in God's Word. That's why Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, he said, Take to your heart 
all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For they are not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. God's Word is living. It is our life. It's how we need to live. Live on God's Word. Do you live on God's Word? Have you desired His Word more than your food? Because this is where we get true life, life eternal in His Word. Secondly, not only is it living, it's also active. You can see it there in verse 12. The Word of God is living and active. Literally, the word here is energetic. There's an energy about it. It's not merely a book on the shelf. Rather, it's like a battery on a shelf, if you will, just waiting to be discharged. And your Bible might sit on the shelf, but it's ready to be discharged, to give power and to give energy. The Bible you have isn't. God has ordained that there are Bibles out there that are. The Bible is the most printed book in the world. People have tried to snuff it out, and yet God has so ordained that my Word is going to endure. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is established in heaven. Psalm 119. God's Word is not left to perish deep in the confines of the Library of Congress only to be discovered by another generation. It's not. It is out and about and it is everywhere. God's Word is accomplishing His purposes. Isaiah said it this way, quoting the Lord, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will My Word, which goes forth from My mouth, it will not return to Me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding the manner for which I sent it. In other words, you look at the rain out there today, and the rain is coming into the ground. What's going to happen to that rain? It's going to nourish the plants. Well, this maybe isn't the spring rain, but when the spring rain comes, it will nourish the plants and it will help grow and it will increase the water reservoirs so we can have thirst. God's water that comes down from heaven accomplishes His purpose and then it evaporates and it will come again and again. The water has the purpose. And so the Lord says, so is My Word. When it's spoken or read or printed or preached, it will always accomplish the purposes of God. My Word will not come back void, is what God says. It will accomplish His purposes. I love what Martin Luther said about the energetic, active work of the Word of God. Martin Luther, you remember, was the catalyst at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. He was the one who stood forth before the corrupt church and before the corrupt priests who were selling indulgences, allowing people to buy their way into heaven. Instead, Luther stood on the doctrines of grace, salvations by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And as he sought to push that message, because it's the message of the Bible, to the Catholic Church, there's a rift and the Protestant Reformation began. And it all was really based upon the gospel of grace. It's upon the gospel. But here's what Luther said about the Word having its purpose, accomplishing everything. He said, I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply preached and wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, so the Word greatly weakened the papacy so that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, Luther says. The Word did everything. 
church. Amen? The power of the Word. There's the testimony. He just put the Gospel in people's hands. And they embraced it. Got the Bible in their hands. Started believing it rather than believing what the church said. God's Word is active and powerful. Even the creation itself obeys God and His Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did He do that? He did it with the voice of His mouth. When God speaks, creation obeys Him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we even saw about the power of God's Word. Verse, chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, He's the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things. How? By the Word of His power. When Jesus speaks, the universe is held together. So powerful is God's Word. Well, God's Word is living. It's active. It's also, here we go, third point, third sub-point. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. In the days of the New Testament, the sword was one of the most instruments, important instruments of war. They didn't have guns. They didn't have cannons. They didn't have grenades. They didn't have atomic bombs and, and tanks. They had bows and arrows and horses and chariots and swords. In this instance, the Word of God is compared with a two-edged sword. <laughs> this is for the kids. It's actually for me. How's that? When you think of the Word of God, this is how you ought to think of it. It is a two-edged sword. It's not just a sword that can cut this way. It can cut both ways. Going in and out, God's Word can. It says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. This is Ray Hook's sword, by the way. It's not, it's not so sharp, but that's okay. You're not, you're not using it, you know, clubbing them in war. Um, but this is what you ought to think of when you think of God's Word. Now, maybe... The actual swords they used, some had big swords, some had small swords. The word here is kind of more of a dagger, but it kind of, this, is, this is a greater effect. Right? This is God's Word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, this metaphor about the Word of God being a sword is used throughout the Scriptures. I mean, there's several times. Think about Ephesians chapter 6, the uh, armor of God speaks about the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and all these types of things. It comes down and says, we ought to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. And then Paul clarifies what the sword of the Spirit is. He says, it is the Word of God. That's what the sword of the Spirit is. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John saw the appearance of Jesus. He says he was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet. He was girt across his chest with a golden sash. He said his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. He said in his right hand he held seven stars. And then he says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Just representing that the Word of God is that which God speaks. The sword is that which God speaks. Later when writing the church at Pergamum, Jesus threatened them with their disobedience. He says, Repent or else I'm coming quickly to you and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here again is the imagery. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It comes out of His mouth and it pierces and is powerful. Each time the sword represents the power of the Word. John Bunyan wrote the classic Pilgrim's Progress. There was a part one and a part two. In part two, Mr. Valiant for Truth showed Greatheart his sword. And Valiant said, 
about his sword. He says, let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding if he can but tell how to lay on. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. What a great saying about the Word of God. Its edges will never blunt. It's a characteristic of God's Word here. It's powerful. It is sharp. It is a a weapon of war that cuts. And as we go on here, we're going to see how deeply it cuts with the fourth characteristic. It pierces deep. Not only is it living, it's active, it's sharp in the two-edged sword, it also pierces deep. God's Word can club down an enemy approaching, but also can dissect to the tiniest degree. It says two things here. It, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. You know, in this way, God's Word is like a surgeon's scalpel. I don't have one of those for you today. I have held a surgeon's scalpel before. Fresh, sharp, to just cut smooth. And that's what God's Word can do. It says it can cut even as far as soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It can get down. Now you say, what is the difference between soul and spirit? Some have taken this verse and said, well, man is made up of flesh, he's made up of soul, and he's made up of spirit. He's a trichotomist. I'm not sure that's the point. Because also, then, why doesn't man have other things? Because he's got bones and marrow. Why do those get shuffled into the flesh side of things? I think you missed the point. The point here is this, is that even if you try to figure out, and it's very hard to figure out in Scripture any difference between soul and spirit, even if you try to figure it out, God can figure it out. And He can splice and He get down, not only just physically within us, but even deep down within our hearts, God's Word cuts why Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness because God can train, God can penetrate deep, God can expose the weakness, convict us of our sin and show us the way of righteousness through Christ. I think of two biblical examples of this taking place. One came on the day of Pentecost. you remember the, the Spirit was poured out upon the people. They were speaking in other tongues. People said, hey, they're drunk. And Peter stood up and said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then through that rest of the sermon, Peter then quotes from Psalm 16 and explains it. And Psalm 110 and explains it to show that the resurrection must take place. And he concludes with these words, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And upon making that statement, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that those who hear were pierced to the heart. What pierced Him? It's the Word of God preached. That's what pierced Him. The power of the Word. To pierce His heart. They said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 joined the church that day. an illustration about one side of the sword convicting to salvation. There's another side of the sword which cuts and convicts to hardness. A few chapters later in the book of Acts, we find Stephen preaching to the council. He got into trouble because of the message he was preaching. 
And then Stephen got up boldly before this council who was judging him and trying him. Brought out many, many scriptures. A lot. Just in one chapter. I'm not sure how many. I didn't count them exactly. I kind of said, I'm not sure I can count them all. 10, 15 maybe in one chapter. He's referring just to scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. He speaks about Abraham and his call from Haran to God's dealing with Joseph in Egypt from God's call of Moses and Midian to the wandering of the tabernacle in the wilderness making the point that God doesn't just work here in Jerusalem, guys. It's that God, God worked when he, Abraham was in Ur. And when Joseph was in Egypt, that's when he worked. And when Moses was in Midian, that's when he called him. And, and the tabernacle roamed all around the wilderness. It's not just Jerusalem, guys. And then he warned them, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous ones, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Listen to the response, what took place. It says in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. There it is. I think that's the cutting of God's Word. Stephen put it out there and they were cut to the quick. Now their response wasn't salvation like Pentecost. Their response was one of murder and outrage and anger. And soon afterwards, they killed Stephen by pelting him with rocks until he died. But such is the piercing work of the Word of God. It's able to pierce deep within our hearts. Now in some instances, it brings a conviction of sin that brings to life. In other instances, it brings to hardness which leads to death. And that's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and following. He said, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Right? As we speak the message of grace, we speak the message of Jesus. We are a fragrance of Christ to people, to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved. You're mess- you just smell Jesus, you ought to. People come across you and say, man, you smell like Jesus. And either you will like it or you will dislike it. Here's what Paul says. From the one, those who dislike our aroma, it's an aroma from death to death. And to the other, those who are being saved, it is an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In other words, we proclaim God's words and there's some who hear it and love it and there's some who hear it and hate it. I have seen both those things in my lifetime. Many times. I've seen many people hate God's Word. I've seen many people love God's Word. You just you smell like Jesus and people will either hate that smell or love that smell. It's a little bit like light. Light to the traveler at night is a blessing, but light to the cockroach wanting to hide is a curse. So also is God's Word as it penetrates and cuts deep. Also, fifth characteristic of God's Word. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it pierces deep, and fifthly, it is able to judge. It says there, the Word of God, at the end of verse 12, is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. At this point, we can think that God's Word is out to get us. God's coming as our judge. He's coming to convict and condemn. 
And there's truth to that. If you're unbelieving and disobedient, that's how God's Word's coming to you. These words are, after all, the end of a warning. The passage of Hebrews. We have a judge who sees all. We will give account to him, as verse 13 says. But I, I think that this has a reference, this judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart to something bigger than mere condemnation. I think the point here is discernment, that God judges. He discerns the heart. That's primarily what this word crino, to judge, means. It means discernment, to divide. That's what a judge does. He has someone before them and he either divides them into innocent or guilty and meets out the punishment or the blessing as is appropriate. God's Word is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when the thoughts and intentions come back unbelieving, then judgment will certainly come. But when God discerns faith and obedience, it won't end in, just, in judgment It will end in entering the rest. As I said in chapter 4, verse 3, we have believed we enter that rest. The rest is what it's all about. Entering the rest of God. God knows our faith. He can discern even when our faith is like a mustard seed. I think there's some encouragement here with that. He comes to struggle, struggling soul and says, verse 15, which follows right after it. See, it's not all condemnation. It says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We'll look at this next time. Just the, the great high priest that we have is Jesus. It says, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, that, that's great comfort coming after this warning. It, it, it's saying that, boy, if you're, if, if, if you're finding in yourself little faith, if God, through His Word, ripping you up and tearing you up, just shows a lack of faith, a lack of obedience, boy, He says, come to Jesus and, and look to Him. He's able to sympathize with your weaknesses because He's been tempted. He knows what temptation is like. And so we draw near to Him so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help of need. And who needs mercy but those who are unbelieving? And who needs grace but to those who are struggling with obedience? That's the good news. That God doesn't stand afar off and says, deal with it yourself. No, He sympathizes with you. We can find great comfort in the probing scalpel of God's Word. It's able to judge. It's able to discern. And that we ought to rejoice. Well, there's my first point this morning. It's that God's Word cuts to the heart. It cuts to the heart. And that can be either a good or bad thing, depending upon where your heart is. But second, verse 13, God's eyes see into the soul. His eyes see into the soul, verse 13. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This verse... 13 says fundamentally the same thing that verse 12 says. It just um, says it using a different metaphor. Verse 12 uses the metaphor of a surgeon who, who cuts and exposes and repairs. And verse 12 speaks about how God's Word cuts and pierces and penetrates and discovers what's in our hearts. And the metaphor changes in verse 13 rather than that of a surgeon uses the metaphor of a scientist. The job of the scientist is to observe and watch and take notes and everything that's going on in the experiment. 
And so also verse 13 speaks about how God's eyes are observing everything that's taking place in our lives. Nothing is escaping his notice. God created the world and he knows everything that's going on in the world. Earlier in their service, I read from Psalm 139. Think about this. God knows when you sit down. God knows when Andy Krauss says, okay, everyone stand and sing. He knows when we stand up and he knows when we sit down. He knows all of your thoughts. That's what the Bible says. We only know what people are thinking if they tell us what they're thinking. But God knows what they're thinking even if they don't say a word. God evaluates the way that you live. He scrutinizes our paths. He knows all about us. He hears everything that we say. He knows beforehand what we're going to say even before we say it. Our days are ordained by God before there is even one of them. You can't run from God. Wherever you are, there God is. If you're in America, God sees you. If you're in Australia, God sees you. If you're deep in a cave someplace, you turn off the lights, God sees you. If you're one of the... elect astronauts, one of those selected astronauts who went to the moon. Even on the moon, God saw them. And for someone who goes to Mars someday, God will see them on Mars. Because our lives are open and exposed before God. Proverbs 15, verse 3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. God knows everything that's going on in our life. The evil and the good of our lives. And, and I think that one of the things about verse 13 is that it ought to cause us to reflect upon our lives. It ought to have an effect upon our lives. J.C. Rowe wrote a great essay entitled Thoughts for Young Men. Several of us fathers are, are reading that to our children, reading it to our sons. Here's what he said. He said, The eye of God. Think of that. Everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. They are eyes that read hearts as well as actions. How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transcended in the chambers of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blushed to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable, driveling folly is all of this. It's a great sentence. Oh, What miserable, driveling folly is all of this. There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door. Draw down the blinds. Shut the shutters. Put out the candle. It matters not. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut Him out or prevent His seeing. And that's the reality of verse 13 is that God sees it all. So I just want to connect this now with our entire warning passage. Remember, Hebrews is a book all about how Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priest. He has a better covenant. He has a better 
sacrifice. He is a better tabernacle. So, since Jesus is so much better, right, the message is that we need to press on. We need to pursue Him. And in the book of Hebrews, there are five warning sections. We've hit the second one in chapter 3, verse 7. And as we've been preaching through this, this is our fifth week here in the, the warning passage. I think I've preached some pretty difficult messages. I think some of you might be weary and, and ready for some Jesus is better. Well, stay tuned because chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 is a wonderful grace message. Just go and run to Jesus. It, it's, by the way, it's how this warning section started. Chapter 2, verse 18 says the same thing. He was tempted in that which he has suffered. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then he bookends it on the back side with, we have a great high priest who's through the heavens. Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's kind of bracketing this warning. Softening the blow in some sense. But they've been difficult messages. They've been difficult because they've been pointed. Because the text has been pointed. And in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, my message there was don't harden your hearts. From chapter 3, verse 8, the command there is don't harden your hearts. And we saw how the Jews grumbled and complained against God, even though they saw His miracles and saw His provision for them and saw He rescued His people out of Egypt. They had every reason to trust Him. They grumbled. And the terrible conclusion came there in verse 11, they shall not enter My rest. It's at that point that the Word of God does its piercing and exposing work in in our lives. If it happened to them, will it happen to me? And that's the call. Don't harden your hearts. See, that's the question that that God's Word will work in your hearts. He'll show you your sin. He'll, He'll give you a clear view of your hearts. And He'll give you an opportunity to respond. If you're thinking right, you'll say, Lord, protect me from a hard heart. You will pray that every day. Help me, God, protect me from a hard heart, which I encourage you to do. I preach that message. In verses 12 and 13, we saw we should care for our hearts. That was the title of my message. Care for your hearts. Take care, brethren. It's how it starts. That there might not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Realize that, that, that you very well could be one of those falls away and realize that there's a disease out there. So protect yourself against the disease. And how do we protect ourselves? Verse 13. We protect ourselves through mutual encouragement. Encourage one another day after day as long as still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage so that we're not hardened. And I say care for your hearts. And so to withdraw or try to do Lone Ranger Christianity is not going to help your hearts. We need each other in this. I need you, and you need me, and you need each other. We need to encourage one another to press on, as Hebrews says. That we not, might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And, and I'm sure as that word went forth, that God was piercing and showing and exposing your heart where you were. And then two weeks ago, we were in this passage, chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, in which I called you to examine your hearts. Because there's two ways. Either you can be holding fast is what verse 14 says. We've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Either we're holding fast or we are unbelieving. As verse 19 says, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And in preaching those verses, we looked to their reference, which was Kadesh Barnea. God had told the people of Canaan, come take the land. And they had spent 12, sent 12 spies in there and 10 of them came back unbelieving. Only Caleb and Joshua believed. And so when the reports were given, and ten gave the bad report, and Caleb and Joshua pleaded and urged with a good report, 
Their hearts were evil and wicked and they followed their own pleasures and believed the ten. And so they were laid low in the wilderness. Everyone over 20 years of age perished in the wilderness over those next 40 years because they didn't believe. And here it is. Just as they failed to enter their rest, so may we fail to enter the rest of heaven if we are in a similar state of unbelief. We need to believe and trust in God. Particularly we need to trust that Jesus is better. That we don't run to anything else as our chief joy. We need to run to Jesus as our chief joy. We walk through this passage. I really encourage you to examine your hearts to see whether you're one who's holding fast or see whether you're one who is believing or not. You're holding fast or you're unbelieving. That that's that's really what what God's word came before us. And then in chapter four it speaks about the priority of entering His rest. My message there was entitled "Enter His Rest." Because that's the point of it all. We press on by faith so that we may enter His rest. And here's what's interesting. As I preach these words, God's Word was at work. I've spoken to several of you who talked about how convicted your hearts were and have been through these messages. There have been some who have come to me with soft hearts and feared the Word of God, as verse 1 says. They've been directed to the Lord to diligently pursue the rest, as verse 11 says. It's how God works. The word goes out, hearts are exposed, and God says, how are you responding? How kind is it of God to expose our hearts to us? Is that all right? If we weren't those who heard the word, we could be like those in the world whose eyes are blinded to the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and they have this malignant tumor and they don't know anything about it. But how good is the MRI which exposes the malignant tumor that the surgeon can take it out? And that's what God has done for us. It opens us up, lays us bare before the Lord. And that tumor of sin can be taken out of us. It can be placed on the cross of Christ. But as God opens up our heart, there's one of two responses that can come. Either you can draw into hopelessness regarding your sin because God knows it all. God, my sin is too bad. It's, it's awful. I'm just, what can I do? Or you can confess your sin and draw near to God, as verse 16 says. That's what David did in Psalm 139. After reflecting upon the all-seeing eyes of God, you remember what he said? He concluded that psalm. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, he said, God, you know everything about me. You know my days. You know before my thoughts, before what I'm going to speak. You know everything about me. And then he says this. He says, so search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And, and I don't think David's saying, because I'm pure and innocent and I'm okay. No, he's saying, see if there be any hurtful way in me. And then the last phrase is crucial. And lead me in the everlasting way. So we think about being open and naked and laid bare before the eyes of God. We ought to say, God, bring it on. Show me the tumors. Show me the sin. I know they're there. I know they're too big. Show me. Help me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Show me that Jesus is better. I'm going to trust Him to wash away my sin, that Your wrath would be turned aside. I could live rightly before You. It's a good prayer for us to pray, right? We see our sin before the Lord. Search me. Try me. Show me. 
see if there be in me a hurtful way and lead me in the everlasting way. And, and my hope and prayer for us this morning is that's how we respond to this passage of Scripture when it says the Word of God is active, it's living. We say, God, let it do its work and help me and I will come before my great high priest and I will plead for mercy and grace, which we'll look at next time. So let's pray. So perhaps even God's Word this morning has, has convicted you in some way. I would encourage you not to set it down, not to block it out, but rather to take it and accept it, embrace it, see your sin for what it is. Don't sugarcoat your sin. Confess it to the Lord and as appropriate to each other. And then I would encourage you to go to the throne of grace. What a great word, the throne of grace. God who judges the hearts and the minds. We can come with a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. So I pray, Lord, that you would would help us today as we see your powerful word. May we be convinced that it's your kindness that helps us. Kindness, your kindness that leads us to repentance by showing us our sin. And I follow you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, which covers great sin. Even as Paul said, the foremost of sinners, he considered himself being a murderer, a blasphemer, and a violent aggressor, hating the way. And yet, God, you showed perfect grace in him. And would all of us know our hearts? We know how sinful we are. Wicked, pursuing things after ourselves rather than things after you. And I pray that you'd, you'd show us mercy at the cross of Christ. May we revel in the precious blood of Jesus. whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to close with, uh, with that last song that we learned today. And then you'll be dismissed. We do a family night tonight. Anything else? Wednesday, the girls you can talk about.